Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Gary, is... The Shockmaster! Sorry, no, it's me, Mr. Tilter Isa. I've been watching that Shockmaster clip quite a bit. We'll put a link to the Shockmaster clip up on Twitter. (laughs) I sent it to Tilt earlier on. Welcome indeed to this very first nocturnal sitcom club, because it is in fact... (laughs) It is ten minutes past midnight in the UK. Tilt, you're always on funny hours anyway. It's four o'clock where you are. But this is also a multi-day podcast as well, because joining us, in addition... From Wellington, New Zealand, as you very knew, of course, is Birdie. Kiora! Hey, should I be Julia, though? Because if you're Tilton Gary. If you wish, yeah, you can become yourself. Yes. But yeah, this is actually the first multi day podcast because Julia, it's Sunday where you are, Ocho, it's Saturday where you are, and I have no clue what the hell it is here. <laughs> I'm completely lost. But anyway, if you've been a long time listener to the sitcom club, you will know that a wee while ago we started looking at the subject of class. Because, of course, it's always an ever-present issue when it comes to British sitcoms. And Julia has been helping us in our discussion on this topic. And so we're now resuming that. And today we are going to be looking at what we sort of loftily call the professional class. This is my idea. And I would like to apologise. <laughs> Apology not accepted. What's that scale? The ABC1, C2, D, E. I mean, how many classes does that come up to? It's pretty clear that you can't just go upper middle working. There's a different experience between your lower middle class and people like the people we saw in today's shows. But we picked them because the professions were central to the premise. But they were all the same, weren't they? They were the same show three times. Mm-hmm. The USP of each one, supposedly, is that they've got some sort of twist. And that applies to two out of the three but one of them doesn't really have any twist at all. And let's be perfectly honest, I mean, I, I suspect that the reason that we actually decided to do a podcast about the professional class was so that we could talk about trouble in mind, because we've been wanting to do that for a while. And I turned down a watchable show. We could have watched Surgical Spirit, and I went, I don't want two medical shows, because otherwise you could just fill professional class with nothing but medicals. And you know what we should have done? We should have had an episode of As Time Goes By. Because she runs a secretarial agency, he's an author and former coffee grower, and that didn't occur to me until about ten minutes ago. Well, we can come back to that in future. It's always on. It's usually on. What do you mean in the future? The show's ending. Should we commit to say that the sitcom club will continue as a bank holiday thing? I, well, I like that. No, six to... a year, so suggestions can still be made and ideas can still be chased. There is a problem here because when you say a bank holiday thing, you know that the August bank holiday. You know, that we don't get that up here in Scotland. We don't get it down here in California, so... That's because it's in the summer, Mooncat. Sorry, Gary. Well, you see, this this is the thing, because that was always a form of torture if you were in Scotland. It still is, of course. I mean, okay, nowadays they don't put anything half-decent on, on bank holidays on the telly. But back in the day, of course, you got things like Disney time and an extended edition of Give Us a Clue and what have you. Every and... day is Disney time for me. Well, that's... By about half past nine, the fireworks start going off and you can hear them. <laughs> In the distance. <laughs> but, of course, up here, you've still got to go to school. So you miss out. You miss out on Herbie Goes Bananas. So example. I thought we'd start with joint account. No, no, hang on. Oh, hang on, hang on. We're going we're to ease ourselves into this. We're going to ease ourselves because we actually do have some any other business to attend to. Here's the thing. If you were listening to the Sitcom Club a couple of weeks ago, then you'll know that we were discussing Last of the Summer Wine. 
As part of our research, we discovered that not only was there a Last of the Summer Wine comic strip in the Daily Star in 1980, but it was released as a book in 1983. If you go into Amazon and you attempt to purchase this book, the chances are that you'll get a Last of the Summer Wine book, but it won't be that one, according to all the reviews that we saw anyway. In the course of our conversation, Ocho actually pressed the one-click button and ordered the book whilst the podcast was going on. And I understand, Till, that you have actually received a book. Is this correct? This is correct. You have not told me until this precise moment what book you received. The book I received was Last of the Summer Wine, the newspaper strip. Oh. I got exactly what the image showed. Do you realise that that is actually worth, I think the current going rate is somewhere in the region of about £51,000? on Amazon for actually getting their correct book. So you probably In perfect wanna... condition. There's, there's a corner snipped off the flyleaf of mine. Okay. I think that brings that down to about to it's gonna a couple of pounds then. less than I paid for it. <laughs> well, a couple of pounds less than the postage I paid. It was 1p for the book. You must go onto Amazon and leave a review and actually say that you got the real thing. It's not very funny. And in fact, some of the strips, it seems like the person's filled in the speech bubbles without looking at the pictures. Some of it's okay. But anyway, yes, I have the newspaper strip. Well, I'm impressed. And I was doubting Thomas because I actually thought that you were going to get some sort of Last of Summer Wine novel by Roy Clark, which would be lovely, but it's not what you ordered. So it's a victory for Amazon. And the reason that I say that you should go on Amazon and leave a review and say that you got exactly that book is for no other reason than it will really annoy those other people who didn't. Why would I do that to them? Oh, go on. What book did they get instead? They, they apparently just got some Last of Summer Wine novel by Roy Clark. The, the novel that became Getting Sam Home, the TV special. Hmm, how disappointing. So, on to today's topic. Now, I've got to ask yourself, Julia, first of all, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but just as a refresher, what is the class structure? Because you're originally from Portsmouth and now you live in New Zealand. So what's the class structure in New Zealand, if there is one? How does it compare to the UK? Well, that's the thing. I don't, I don't think there really, really is one. I mean, it's a quite flat society, but I think you, you've got, uh, I think, actually, if I think about it, we probably, we've probably got a, you know, middle, middle class because we talk about those sorts of people. And you've certainly got your working class. And by that, I mean, probably uh, lower income persons. But I don't think we've got that real upper or at least it's not visible, because um, uh, you know uh, we've got have obviously we've got um, you know landed gentry and stuff. But you know there's money, there's people with money. But um, no, it's not something um, prominent. The, the people that um, are our heroes and that have got the influence and so forth are probably our, our sports people and um, and business people and so forth. I can't wait to talk about troubling minds. I tell you. I'll tell you. Let's dash through the other two then. Joint account, <laughs> executive stress. <laughs> so troubling mind. Okay, well let's let's save the best. <laughs> To last. So, okay, so first of all... I'll have to move my mic, I'm laughing. Hey, we've seen all nine episodes of Trouble in Mind. (laughs) Well, can I just say, because that was the third episode we watched, I thought, oh, I think I know how this must have started, what the premise was. I want to go and check, so I tried to find some other episodes, and then I found out, yep, nine episodes, and um, it was actually cancelled mid-run or something like that but my, my guess about the premise was correct so I was quite pleased but I can't believe they cancelled it. Anybody who has listened to probably more than one sitcom club knows that I'm a huge fan of the phrase move to a less competitive slot and the really good thing about Trouble in Mind is that it happened twice in the course of its nine episodes. It got bumped from 7.15 to after nine o'clock originally and then after six episodes they just held it back until the summer and then put the last three out then. And that's marvellous, isn't it? Right, okay, executive stress. We'll start with that. We've got three series of this. 
1986 through to 88, and it is by George Layton, best known as Paul Collier in Doctor at the Top way. First thing about this is... Now, Till, you noticed this first of all, you noticed this in the end credits, that there's an interesting duo responsible for the theme music. Oh, me? Oh, yeah, oh, it's played in my mind as it was going. I, thought, I know that bit of tune. And at the end, I, I thought it was Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. But the little motif in there, I sent it to you. Um, it's from Aspects of Love. They use it as a, one of the connecting themes through Aspects of Love. And I just thought it was, Aspects of Love is my, probably my favourite Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, which I don't know that I should be omitting that anyway. But it, I suppose it thinks, makes you think, oh, there's a bit of a pedigree to this show, isn't there? Angela Webber doing the theme tune core. When you said about it always being used in aspects of love, I presumed that that was predating this, but no, executive stress is about three years before that, isn't it? So yeah, and, and as I said to you, that you know, you know that they reuse music. Um, the example I gave was when um, Tim Rice was on Parkinson or something like that, and he said that the original tune for "I Don't Know How to Love Them," sorry, the original lyrics were um, "I Love the Kansas Morning." So I guess for Andrew Lloyd Webber, that little bit of music had been hanging around his head for some time, and that's when he used it in Aspects of Love later. But he doesn't use it for uh, like a whole song. If you know the score, you'd recognise it instantly. What's the deal here, Till? What's what's happening? Who who are we talking about? What are they doing? What's going on? I liked it anyway. You did? Oh, it's a little bit butterflies at the beginning with somebody having their emotional needs ignored by Jeffrey Palmer. You're right. And the long-haired son. Oh, that was ridiculous. That was magnificent. I think I, lo- I liked it because I like Penelope Keith and Jeffrey Palmer. And I mean, I believed them. Yeah, I believed them, I think. I just couldn't bring myself to care too much because... Jeffrey Palmer was, was quite unlikable. So unlikable in that first scene. It's making a really big thing. Let's look at him ignoring his wife's emotional needs. And then in the next couple of scenes, we're supposed to be on his side. Oh, look at these stuffy old men with their stuffy old publishing house, not listening to a hip young gunslinger like Jeffrey Palmer who knows how to sell books. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've shown that he is forward-looking on publishing, but he's been quite unpleasant to his wife. He barely knows she's there. I don't know. Was I going to mention Ibsen? Probably not. When you say he's forward-looking on publishing, do you mean he wants to have... He wants a nudie bird on the cover of the book. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yes. This seems to be his, his, his big thing, so to speak. He seems less concerned about... <laughs> no, he seems less concerned about the content. And I'm thinking perhaps he's in the wrong line of publishing. Maybe he should be based in Soho or something like that. No, it would be tasteful. It would be artistic. It'd be a painting of a nudie bird. Oh, okay. Or perhaps in silhouette or something like that. And then the back cover would be Tony Haygarth doing his milkman salute. <laughs> so uh, it's an episode of whatever happened to the Likely Lads where Tony Haygarth plays a milkman. You know the thing where you put one hand in the crook of your arm and you bring your fist up and go, Fwah! we call that the Haygarth salute now. <laughs> Maybe wearing some of those glasses to make it look like your eyes popped out. So that um, episode we watched, that was the first one in the series, eh? It was indeed. Is that right? And it's one of those things where you say that it's not the sort of thing that happened in real life because what happens at the end is she's just taken a job at the company that he's just moved to and they look at each other and it's like, in real life you would say, oh crap, that's my husband. And HR would get involved, you'd write some papers out, wouldn't you, at the end of the series. It wouldn't happen in real life, would it? I'm assuming that, do they keep the secret in the next episodes? Here's the odd thing about this. How do we peek at the Radio Times Guide to Comedy earlier on to see how this played out? Because outrageously, I didn't actually watch all three series of it in one sitting. Now, the first thing to point out, of course, is it's only Jeffrey Palmer in series one. In series two and oh. three, he is replaced by... Actually, I'll let you guess, Julia. If you're going to recast oh, okay. 
If you're going to recast, who, who, would you, who would you put in, the, in this place? Doesn't Penelope Keith have a clause in her contract that says 75% of any series must be played by Peter Bowles or something? Ah, well, so, uh, yes. Peter Bowles, does he come into it? He, he does, does he? yes, he does, he does. Shut the front door. Does he really? <laughs> he does indeed, yes, yeah. Well, he takes on Jeffrey Palmer. Well, he, he takes his role, yes, yes. <laughs> well, so, so is it he replaces her husband and we just, you know, he's still her husband or does her husband go and he becomes a different <laughs> But no, you're making this up now. I'm going to go no, Google no, it. I'm not. No, no, no. He just replaces Jeffrey Palmer in the role as he's already her husband. It's not like Jeffrey Palmer as the husband leaves and then gets replaced by Peter Bowles off the telly. He doesn't know. They're it not really very similar actors, are they? No. <laughs> and you know, you're talking about upper class. I mean, Peter Bowles is the is the epitome of the upper class thing, isn't he? You mentioned William Franklin last week. Gary William Franklin replacing Jeffrey Palmer because he's got a dark brown voice and a stoic temperament. I still don't believe you. I'll send you an episode. You can see it. Does he have the moustache? Oh yes, got to have a moustache. It's in his contract. No, I've seen him. I think he was in Jericho, the Robert Lindsay cop show, and he didn't have a moustache and he had a Cockney accent. Get out of here! And I didn't know it was him. I was watching this for about twenty minutes, thinking there's something about because he'd gone completely grey. I'm watching thinking there's something about this fella. And then it's like, oh my God, it's Peter Bowles. He's a chameleon. He's the new Lon Chaney. I don't even know what this programme is. Jericho, Robert Lindsay, when was it made? But 10 years ago. Yeah, it was a uh, post-war London, late 40s London, and it was a bit all sleazy and slimy and Robert Lindsay in a fedora instead of a beret. Before we leave executive stress, just, I want to put out an appeal to the sitcom club audience because I have a line from Peter Bowles stuck in my head and I don't know where it's from. All I know is that Peter Bowles is sat at the breakfast table and he says, now I'll have marmalade on my suit. I shall have to change. Comedy gold! <laughs> Does he think a grapefruit and push it into Penelope Key's face? <laughs> With a little glassy cherry stuck on the end of it as well. <laughs> So if you happen to know what show that line is from, then please send us a postcard and we'll respond. Uh, second class mail. It might not even be a sitcom, that's a thing, because he did some dramas, didn't he? Around the mid-80s, maybe. Oh, I liked him in the Irish RM. I'll just that was my favourite Peter yes. series. Oh, yeah, I loved that. We'll discuss a bit more. And he was Toby Mears in the pilot of Callan. Ah. So, okay, exactly. We're not saying anything about this show, are we? No, okay, so the... the <laughs> Julia, to answer your question, the, you asked the question about does it all next the following week, are, are they oh, still yes, pretending yes. not to be husband and wife? And the answer to that is yes. They go through this facade and they are attempting to keep it from everybody <laughs> in the new company that they are husband and wife and they leave the house at separate times and what have you and they get two phone lines installed and all this And then stuff. in the second series, the boss comes home and he sees like the, the wedding picture and he has to go and have plastic surgery to look like Peter Bowles instead. To... <laughs> well, I'm hoping they get sacked. I'm hoping they get sacked. There's a whole code of conduct issue. HR get involved and I hope they get their just desserts. You just can't do that in the business world. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but no, they don't. Because what happens is that halfway through series two, they get found out and then everything just carries on. In series one, is there an incident perhaps where a young lady flirts with Jeffrey, what's his face and stuff and it all gets a bit, or somebody flirts with Penelope Keith and it all gets a bit, you know. Ah. Do you know what this was missing? A Randy Bloke played by Clive Francis. <laughs> there was a guy in the office that Penelope Keith went to work at and I thought he was going to be the um, the office Lothario. 
I thought that too. Yeah, yeah. Whereas he just repeated the last thing somebody else said. So as far as the professional class is concerned, is this a show about the professional class or is it a show about the, the situation which which happens to be that's the background in there, within the publishing world and yeah. so on? I didn't think so. They breach the rules and they still don't get fired because they're valued members of the company by that point. One rule for them and another rule for anybody lower down the totem pole. I'm sure if they'd been hiding a marriage, they'd be out on their ear. Yeah, quite right. But it was publishing, wasn't it, as well? It's not, I don't think it's a, it's not a professional class, is it? Well, our general idea was it's, it was a case of where you could lose your job and you'd be okay for a bit. The example we used was Terry and June. Terry is terrified of losing his job because if he loses his job, his nice house is at risk, his lifestyle is at risk. Whereas all of these people, the faint feeling was that if they lost their jobs, they'd just kind of drift for a few months while they looked for something else to do that might be nice. And also Penelope, if she, her character hasn't had a job for about 20 odd years. She's not just got this job in the place. I want to mention the long-haired son again. <laughs> Please do. Why was the son in it? He was in it because I suspect that he might come back at some point in the future and cause problems because if he blunders into the publishing house and says, oh, hello, mum, hello, dad, and then Retro Marsh or whoever, who's the big boss of the, the new company, he's like, oh, what, what is this outrage? But what, he didn't need to be in this episode. Yes, he did. Why? What plot point did he serve? Well, the point he served was so it could be shown. So Penelope Key has been at home all this time. As soon as she gets a whiff of going back into the workplace, she lets them down. She doesn't turn up for lunch to see her son off to university because her work is more important. That's what it is, just to show a shift in her mindset. But anyway, they're talking about he's going to Oxford and Geoffrey Palmer says something about maybe you should have got a haircut. And his hair is barely touching his collar and it's short on top anyway. It's not like he's got anything you could call long hair. It's just the hair at the back of his neck is just beginning to suggest it might start touching his collar. And that still gets me because I'm assuming that the character is written as a late 80s student. It was meant to look that way, but rather the suggestion is is that Jeffrey Palmer, who we've previously seen wanting hardcore pornography on the cover of every single book, is now suddenly so ridiculously out of touch. Sorry, oh, it's terrible talking over people, but I just, as you said that in my, I recast him as Nicky Henson. <laughs> so I think he could have done it. I was actually thinking Trevor Bannister, circa 1973, in sort of Mr. Lucas garb. But with moustache, they both have a moustache though. Nicky Henson's got the moustache, <laughs> and Trevor's got the moustache too. They've got to have a military moustache. I was thinking that guy out of the Yellow Pages advert who gets a French polisher. <laughs> Yellow pages, you could just save my life. <laughs> I think that's the type it was written for. Whereas his son is already a member of the cabinet. <laughs> Should have been Jimmy Cleverow. Well, that's true of so many things. <laughs> so, executive stress, it is what it is. I mean, it's not the worst. No. It's a gumbo scene, is it? <laughs> yeah, indeed. But I mean, it's perfectly all right. And the thing is that I suspect that it's probably going to be better and it's sort of early first few episodes because you've got that sort of farcical element to it so it's not really it's not like this is a sitcom it's only for abc ones which of course was itv's big thing i felt completely alienated by it yes i couldn't bring myself to care about these people so moving channels we're now going to look at a delightful series from 1989 it was two series of this and it's called joint account now 
tilt just to confirm that this is not the one-off comedy playhouse with Keith Barron, is it? It is not, and it is not related to it. It's not one of those in loving memory cases where something is piloted and then years later then becomes a series, as far as we can tell. So we have Hannah Gordon from the Safeway adverts, and she is (laughs) manager of a bank, and her deputy manager is John Byrne, and she's married to Paul from Everdequies and Circles, and he is a sort of stay-at-home new sort of man, and he does a lot of charity work and so on. And Peter so, Egan played Toby Mears in the movie version of Callan. It just occurred to me. You realize that you are now going to have to find somebody in Trouble I in can't, Mind who's I related don't think to I can. Toby Mears. If only Trouble in Mind had Anthony Valentine, we'd all be fixed. But <laughs> It'd be a very different show. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Especially if it was instead of Susan Penhaligon. So again, we've got our sort of twist. Uh, yes, it's an all middle class sitcom and Hannah Gordon's character, she is a professional woman and she's out there and she's got this responsible job. And Peter Egan, he's sort of happy to just... <laughs> Play with his black pudding. <laughs> hey. You had to explain that now. You can't just throw that out there. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's, it's, at one point he's just toying with a black pudding. No, no, that thing from next door was uh, toy with a black pudding. She brings the black pudding round, but I'm pretty sure he picks it up and looks at it, like probably doesn't know what it is. Probably thinks it's some sort of wild truffle. So apart from playing with his black pudding, Paul is, I'm just going to call him Paul, he is uh, <laughs> advising the Citizens Advice Bureau, and you've got the stream of, of supposed cranks coming in with all the different problems and what have you. A little bit similar to Trouble in Mind. This is interesting because at one point he's advising somebody to get debt counselling and then there is a bit of friction about Hannah Gordon being a bank manager and she's thrown into doubt. So there is an acknowledgement of the world outside the professional class bubble and I would be mildly curious to see if that really ever goes anywhere. It did sort of feel like two sitcoms... Forced to share a little bit. It, it was an interesting balance. It was I wasn't expecting their two workloads to sort of intertwine. But yes, I, I know what you mean. So there's an acknowledgement that not everybody is off buying yachts and starting gardening, landscaping companies and so on. Nonetheless, I find it a bit drab, to be honest. I, I wasn't hugely into this. I think it stacked the deck against Peter Egan as David Braithwaite. It seemed like the beginning was trying to get across this idea that he's a lazy wimp. Julia, did you get any sense of that? He looked awfully uncomfortable. I know, maybe because of that um, dressing gown. But um, when he picked up the uh, coffee plunger, I thought, oh, he looks like a man who's never held anything. Oh, I just didn't like it. No, it's sex stress. Penelope Keith and uh, Jeffrey Palmer, very watchable, believable. The trouble with this is I like Peter Egan and I like Hannah Gordon. I think they're very good actors and they can be very funny. But in this, there was no chemistry between them. And sometimes it looked like they were just waiting for the other person to say their lines. Hannah Gordon especially. I didn't believe them. You know, you said you couldn't care about Penelope Keith and Jeffrey Palmer, but I couldn't care about these two. They just didn't seem to be connected. So I didn't want to watch it. The dressing gown. That is the mistake because it shows him as a loafer. But he is a loafer. That was my problem with this show, is that when I read the press for it, I thought, oh, it's going to be basically Peter Regan sat in his pants and he's surrounded by dog ends and old copies of the sporting life <laughs> and beer cans and he's unshaven and you know sometimes you, you think is he actually you know, is he stoned right now because he's not responding to anything that, that, that his wife's saying is he alive 
Yeah, well, exactly. He never moves. He's, he's like Jim Royal. He just never moves from that chair. That's what it should have been like. But no, he actually had a, a really packed itinerary. He just doesn't earn any money from it. That was disappointing. And also, I think the other thing was I was also getting this mixed up with that Gareth Hunt and Louisa Ricks sitcom from a completely different period of time. I was sure that Peter Regan played a lot of golf in this, but he doesn't. There were bits that weren't jokes that got laughs. That bit where Hannah Gordon's saying to John Bird, oh, you probably think that women should be lounging around on silk sheets with a mouthful of Turkish delight. And then her secretary comes in and she says, have you ever laying around on a silken sheet with a mouthful of Turkish delight? And the secretary goes, no. And I get to laugh. I have a note here, doesn't deserve a laugh track. (laughs) (laughs) I have to admit that my mind was slightly wandering as I was watching this. And... If that happens during a sitcom, it usually means that I've started to think of alternative plots for the show. So I was sort of thinking, in addition to Peter Regan's character being this just feckless workshy layabout, it genuinely is that they've got a joint account. And Hannah Gordon, she can't keep up with all of her work at the bank because she's constantly keeping an eye on her own joint account because he's always plundering it to go and spend having a good time down at the, the high street. Well, here's an idea. She comes home and he's there on silk cushions in his dressing gown. And she says, what have you done with the money in our joint account? And he languidly looks over and goes, I spent it on joints. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he spent it on Turkish Delight. So what, what happens then after this? Because it ends with, you know, she's accidentally handed in her resignation. And, and Peter Regan's character has already said that their whole lifestyle depends on her having the job because they have the you know the low interest rate on their mortgage etc etc so what happens i I want to know what happened to these people he manages to intercept the post and she doesn't resign because it spends so much time on the setup it would be bizarre to just sweep that away to say by the way you will never see john bird again you'll never see the secretary who doesn't really have jokes but gets laughs john bird's character is awful i mean not just as an antagonist He's too nasty that it's just, just get him off. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's no subtlety because we're, we're supposed to believe that he's always after Hannah Gordon's job. But if he was to behave like that in a real office, then he'd be at the damn door, wouldn't he? I Absolutely. Mean, he's not plotting. He's actually saying it in front of her. I want your job and I'm going to do my job badly so you get the sack. It did bring to mind one advantage of the professional class format. It's in this. It's in trouble in mind. When you have people who work in offices who have to regularly see lots of different people, you can just bring in another funny character. So how believable do we think that the offices are in executive stress and joint account? Because we're not looking at call centres, we're not looking at sort of ordinary offices and what have you, but at the same time, it's supposed to be something which is recognisable. I've never worked in an office. (gasps) You lazy, lazy man. Well, but it was 1988. Things are different then. You know, I work in, I've worked in the public service for 20 odd years and we started off with offices. Now, new, new building, there will be no offices. People don't have offices anymore. You go to a bank. You don't go into the, the bank manager's office. People come out to you. It's completely different. Even thinking, oh, look at her bank manager and, and she's whatever age she is saying, oh, I want to go home. I want to be a housewife. It's just so, it's hard, really hard to connect uh, thinking now with that kind of thinking. So, yeah, she dressed dreadfully too. <laughs> Bloody women. My problem with Hannah Gordon's office is that it seemed to have three doors. And well, wasn't there, there was three doors. There was one that the secretary always came through. There was one that John Bird always came through. And there was another one that she left through at the end of the episode. But what kind of room is this? And they're all on the same side as well, all on the same side of the 
small. There was one bit I really liked when he says, what have you done with the soap on a rope? And she goes, I tried to hang myself, but it was too slippery. <laughs> she suddenly decided she's in a Mockman Y sketch and she had worked with them. Oh, yes. Yeah, she worked with them a number of times. Okay, I've got a theory because I found there a couple of places where I thought Hannah Gordon was overacting. Oh, you reckon? God. Oh, sorry. I don't like to be too nasty about people who are doing their job. She was shocking. She struck me as a bored actor who was overacting in places just to maintain interest. And that line seemed to be like, oh my God, something that's recognisably a joke. I am just going to go to town on this. <laughs> Were you thinking of the uh, the whole drunk scene as well? Yes. That was rather overacted, yeah. I guess the thing is, because she was kind of overacting, and she's a, you know, she's a great dramatic actress, she's nice. She can do quiet acting, but I think contrasting that with Peter Egan, because he wasn't playing it big, so it made it made it kind of worse, you know? It's an odd transition, is it? Not everybody works well in that sitcom environment with a live audience. Would the show have been better, perhaps, as a show on, on film without an audience? If you were to say, you know, like the Hannah Gordon's character, John Bird's character, they can all be a bit more subtle. Maybe a bit more nuance in there. Mm. Actually, can I bring in something that we're not going to do? A Gentleman's Club, which was due to be the next sitcom we dealt with, and then I watched the first two, and it's like, we can't do this. This is dead. And that is multi-camera VT, but no studio audience, and it just lies there. It's one of the deadest things I've ever seen. Even Ronnie Stevens can't save it. So who's in that? Richard Vernon and William Gaunt, and it's set in a gentleman's club. I can't remember the name, but it's one of those sort of Athenian-type places. Oh, not such a lively place to set a sitcom, is it, in the first place? No, and people say things that are moderately amusing, and there's nothing to push it. It's a really excellent example about how the idea that lack of studio audience makes something classy in this case, the lack of studio audience just took all the air out of it. Might have been chuckle-worthy, but ugh. A gentle comedy, as they say. No, I'll, I'll stand up for gentle comedy. This was just dead. Marble cold. If we're going to discuss shows that we're not discussing on the sitcom club, I think probably Tilt is a good place to mention Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. Because we had a request from Laps Cat a long, long time ago. I'm talking like potentially about maybe two years ago for us to talk about this and of course if you don't know what the show is this is Rick Mill, Adrian Emerson, Nigel Planer after the Young Ones but before Bottom. Now apologies Lapscap because we have failed you. We actually, George Grimwood and I tried to record a cast about Phil Fritch and Cat Flap about a year ago maybe 18 months ago. For whatever reason it just didn't work, it just didn't happen. Did you try and twice? I think we might have done, we might have tried a couple of times. There's not very many, but there have been a few sitcom clubs where we've actually started the recording and eventually it's just tailed off and we've just decided like this isn't working. One of them was the Doctor series. And I think that's because we, we tried to select the first episode of each series and I don't think it actually gave us a proper picture of what the shows were like, so we ended up just sort of abandoning the recording. So last week, Till you started watching Phil Rich and Cat Flap, I mean, I did have reservations about this. I was not convinced that you were going to get through all six episodes. It was a matter of finding something to say, because I watched it all at the time. And I think we would have just sort of been reciting the jokes to each other. There was a little bit maybe to say about that schism between the old comedy establishment and the new comedy establishment, but not enough to fill 50 to 70 minutes. So that isn't happening. So apologies, Laps Cat. All I can say is that I certainly loved it at the time when it was going out originally. When I saw it again recently, I was sort of thinking, 
yeah, maybe it's me that's changed. The overall pace of it and what have you, I was finding a bit sort of exhausting. But yeah, it's still a bloody good piece of work. I, I don't think it comes close to Bottom. I think Bottom is still one of the best sitcoms the last 25 years or so. But there, in a, in a tiny little nutshell, that's a little sort of capsule review of Overture and Catflap. So apologies uh, that we didn't get a full cast out of that. As far as this podcast is concerned, there were a few other titles that we did consider looking into because at first we weren't sure if we could get a hold of all of these shows. So we did actually consider at one point and until I think you actually rather controversially, I think you said that one of the shows was the greatest piece of television work you'd ever seen. And that was You Must Be the Husband with Dan Keane and Taylor Taylor. That was certainly something that existed. All I can remember is it used Take 5 as its theme tune. And it being mocked on the, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, reunion. So circa 1990 or something, 1988. <laughs> they, they had to get the team back together and Tim Brooke Taylor was living in a town called Milton sitcom. <laughs> yeah, we didn't watch that just because we didn't need to. We thought we had all three in. Maybe we should have watched that because it was about a professional woman and the man who seeds in emasculated <laughs> horror. How far did I get with Laura and Disorder? Was it six minutes? What was that even about? That was Wendy Craig and she was like an interfering mother-in-law or something like that. And she was in the USA of America and then she came back to London and all manner of chaos ensued. I was getting that mixed up. Isn't there a show called Law and Disorder with Penelope Keith as a barrister? Yes, there is. Uh, we should have watched that maybe. Am I right <laughs> thinking that there, there seems to be... I think there's less of this kind of thing around now. I don't know about drama because drama's not really my thing Till you can tell me if that's still the case with drama. But as far as sitcoms concerned, I don't think that sitcoms these days tend to be quite as targeted to the social economic groups as they once no. were. No, no. The sort of stuff that I'm watching on Lightbox at the moment is any other, this is stuff like five or six years older stuff, I suppose you know, the English sort of stuff, I, it seems to be directed more at that kind of um, 30-something uh, uh, age group. You know, I watched, I've watched all the teachers, for example, and I, I tried to watch Coupling. I gave up on that. I think I've mentioned that before. I hate it with all my heart. But, you know, things like um, Two Pints of Lager and those sorts of things coming through, it seems to – actually, the royal family, it seems to be um, down at that sort of level – I say, and working class people are not stupid. Do you know what I mean? The sitcoms are full of very bright people, very bright working class people, sharp and very comedically observant kind of people, apart from the obligatory thicko that you always have in every series. You don't have a big difference in cultural aspiration now, though. You don't have people who only ever listen to classical music and go to the opera and read dense tomes. Everybody just sits around in a onesie playing the ukulele eating Smarties. Have you got a webcam? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. And it's partly because of that geek culture and nerd culture and everything's taken over. That might be it as well. As far as ITV is concerned, of course, they have sort of crept back into this area recently. But around about the sort of early 1990s, they pretty much got out of the business. I mean, it was a gradual thing. They didn't do it overnight, but they largely moved away from traditional sitcom and they actually found the audience that they were looking for with shows like Cold Feet and Outside Edge and, and things like that which are described as comedy dramas and you know. What's the top sitcom in the UK at the moment then? The it's a funny one actually because we seem to be a You'd bit hope. Of, well, well, well quite but we're in a bit of a throwback situation because the two most popular sitcoms by 
some considerable distance. I mean, these are shows which regularly get somewhere in the region of about 7 or 8 million viewers, which is very, very good these days for a sitcom, are Mrs. Brown's Boys and Still Open All Hours. We've had the spate of all the single camera, no audience shows that were sort of derived from the Royal Family and The Office. And we seem to have ended our experiment with trying to target specific little groups with sitcoms and so on. And now we've gone back to barnstorming, free wall, VT, studio audience, everything turned up to 11. And it seems to be proving very popular. But you can see why that is, can't you? Because, oh, well, actually, I'm just guessing. It seems to me that the people that are watching that are not the people who are sitting, watching comedy from the States and streaming it and watching it on, you know, through the internet and stuff. That sounds like your traditional sit in front of the TV and watch a comedy kind of audience, i.e. older persons. be interested to see exactly what the audience breakdown is of a show like Mrs. Brown, because of course that, that's been going in the theatres for a long time before it ever got to TV. So it already had a fan base out there. Is that on ITV or, uh, or BBC? BBC, funnily enough. It's oh, okay. a BBC RTE okay. co-production. But I wonder if the last few years, what with you know the age of austerity and so on, things like that, I wonder if perhaps there, there seems to be more of an appreciation for just something that's utterly light-hearted and good fun and you can just lose yourself in it entirely. Whereas the shows from a few years ago were, were, were perhaps, say, like one of those sort of BBC free shows where it's single camera, all sort of dark and moody and what have you, and it's like a character's in a sort of grim situation and what have you. And those shows are still around, but perhaps people are just in the mood to laugh. Well, maybe they get a lot of their comedy from other places now, like reality TV shows. I imagine I'm still guessing that the quiz show phenomena is still quite big, the comedy quiz phenomena. You know, you're getting a lot of your laughs through that, aren't you? Yeah, the panel shows are still as prevalent as they they once were. I think that that there are attempts to sort of tweak them and there's been sort of concerns that some of them have got too skewed towards a male audience. But yeah, they certainly don't seem to be in any decline. That's because women aren't funny. That is a statement. You you can make that statement, and I cannot make that statement on the air until you can't say that either. But Doesn't make it less true. Hattie Jakes was funny. Joyce Grenville was funny. Madeline Kahn. There you go. Oh, well done, guys. <laughs> I think it's that panel games are quite... Comp- I'm just watching Mop the Week uh, right from the beginning, which is quite funny. It's Maybe it's because men are inherently more competitive. And uh, that's perhaps why they would do better in panel panel games. Yes, possibly. possibly trouble so. in mind. It's trouble in mind. Okay, now. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, keep, keep right, going. Right, okay, right, hang on. So, to return to the topic in hand, we're now <laughs> going to discuss the greatest <laughs> sitcom ever made. But it's, it must have been seen in the background. Huh? It's oh. 1991, it's ITV, it's Richard O'Sullivan, Susan <laughs> Penhaligon, and... Say, the, again. Say it again, go on. Susan Penhaligon. Susan Penhaligon. <laughs> <laughs> Susan Hexagonal. She's on Twitter. She could kill us. With one glance. Okay, we're going we're gonna to start right at the very beginning. And there's something quite intriguing about Trouble of Mind before we even get to the text. And that is its lovely theme music, which is composed by Richard O'Sullivan himself and then arranged by, I think, Laurie Holloway. However, Till, you've had this idea in mind for a little while. Now, let me explain. Uh, the problem with the Trouble in Mind theme tune, it's not the fact that Richard O'Sullivan composed it, because he did Robin's Nest. But he did Robin's Nest at the time of wonderful analog synths. and Whereas this is done on some keyboard that's been bought at a petrol station and doesn't seem to be in concert pitch. 
I was actually thinking more that he got it from the Brian Mills catalogue and paid for it over 40 weeks. There's a bit where the, the breast is supposed to come in and it just goes off key. <laughs> now, you know you get people with false memories. I, I think there's a phenomenon that causes this that I like to call holding memories. You hear something, you think, I think I remember that. And I think it was like this. I'll wait until some more information locks with that or proves it to be false. And I would occasionally, I don't know, for some reason I'd be reading about Richard O'Sullivan's career and there'd be a mention of Trouble in Mind as being possibly his first big flop. I thought, Trouble in Mind, Trouble in Mind, was, was that about a guy who was going through a really horrible time? And I think maybe there was a trailer and he just kind of saw him walking along and he looked very weathered. I can't be sure. But I'll just hold that memory and see if it locks. And of course, it's complete nonsense. It's nothing like that. And then Gary and I started discussing what this other trouble in mind might be like. <laughs> and I came up with an alternative theme tune. This is the trouble in mind for the dark and disturbed version where Richard O'Sullivan is walking around with an ashen face. One, two, three, four. Trouble in mind. It's what I call it. So much trouble in mind. I could leave it behind. All of this trouble in my mind. Duh. <laughs> I'm going to say that uh, that has immeasurably improved the show immediately. That was good. I like I like that. Do you want to see that show? Okay, now can I tell you what I'm picturing? I don't know if you've ever seen a clip of Richard Stilgo on Nationwide where he's singing <laughs> a, a satirical song and he's appearing on the screen about maybe five or six times all at the same time. That's what I'm picturing here is that you're actually getting to see like different versions of Richard O'Sullivan's character according to his multiple personalities, and they're all singing this song at the same time. So I know we decided that his catchphrase would be, why is this happening to me? And there'd be an episode where he found himself in the studio audience of the previous week's Trouble in Mind. (laughs) (laughs) And it would just be very unpleasant. (laughs) Terrible things would happen to him every week. That would make him doubt reality. You see that, that, that last note in the new theme tune? Right, I'm imagining that he's got his mouth wide open when he sings that, and then the camera just zooms straight in down his throat. Did I not pitch the idea to you that there should be like elements of animation in <laughs> Trouble in Mind? And I think that I pictured him at one point eating the sun and, and then wondering why there was no daylight anymore and realising that it was all in his stomach. Julia. Oh, it'd be the cartoon, like the rhubarb and custard effect kind of uh, cartoon, wouldn't it? Yeah, sort of wobbly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yep, yep. Julia, um, yes. <laughs> did you enjoy Trouble in Mind? Yes, Gary. How did you enjoy the show? Well. It was a specially selected episode, by the way, wasn't it, Till? Yeah, we selected it for the ending. Oh, yes, of course, the, the Taj Mahal ending. Yes. Um. Well, uh, comedy. It's a funny old thing. I guess, <laughs> well, okay. I didn't, I couldn't, um, didn't seem to have much of a story arc, did it? But um, I guess the thing that struck me was the, the whole thing about he's a psychiatrist, isn't he? And there's that woman there who's having those awful dreams about, you know, husband, meat cleavers, whatever it was. And then the sort of tension that he misses the garden party because oh, <laughs> she's up on the roof, possibly going to kill herself. And oh, haha, no, that's not what happens. I think there's a question of tone wasn't quite right. You've got to go quite dark with that sort of stuff, haven't you, really? Yeah, you certainly could do a dark series about 
psychiatry and, and what have you. But this is what gave me the sort of perverse attraction to this show when I saw this at first. And it was, like I say, it was on Granada Plus around about 1998. And I've told this story on sitcom club before but just to refresh people's memory the reason that i've got such a dislike slash weird interest in this show is because that opening sequence where he's looking at the yachts for example and susan penhaligan she's got her idea about starting her business and, and what have you the night before i saw that i'd seen the stepped on sun episode the desperate hours and that opens and closes with Stepton's son going through their tray of old foreign coins to try and find one that will fit the meter so they can get the lights back on. And it seems like such a horrible comparison. Going from that to Richard Sullivan, I've got a quarter of a million quid in the bank. Should I spend it on a big yacht or shall I have my wife put it into this company or whatever? I've got too much bloody money. And also I'm going to have me nuts seen to as well. <laughs> so... this is a good time to discuss briefly the ending to the vasectomy episode (laughs) which ending well um we'll start with the real one and then move on from there yeah there's this whole thing about his vasectomy we're supposed to be really interested in it because his wife insists he get a vasectomy so he has one oh poor baby that's it, really. When you say she insists, what, what a knife point? Or, or what was the circumstances? That's not the way marriage works. Well, maybe it does in Glasgow or something, I don't know. But She swans in in slow motion in her supposedly sexy pyjamas, and he's practically doing a Hagar salute. <laughs> <laughs> and then she tells him no special care <laughs> Till snip time! And his friend, who's also a doctor, plays a nasty joke on him and bursts a paper bag while the surgeon is just about to make the first incision. But I think it's something he and the surgeon cooked up between them. But it's just that idea that he thinks he's going to be gelded. And he does walk like John Wayne for the rest of the series, doesn't he? (laughs) You realise that they missed a trick with this particular show because as the story goes... Because I was watching the Daughter series recently and out of a sense of compulsion, I ended up finishing with Doctor at the top, which goes on a bit. Apparently, Richard O'Sullivan's character, Lawrence Bingham, in the original Doctor series, they wanted to recast him in Doctor at the top, but he had to turn him down because he'd already committed to doing Trouble in Mind. Now, there is an episode of Doctor at the top all about vasectomies as well. So what should have happened is that when O'Sullivan was having it done in Trouble in Mind, it should have been done by Paul Collier. They should have had a George Layton crossover. That would have been good. And then, yeah, and they should have said, oh, there's an old fella here in the next bed as well, and there's Robin Nedwell. They should have done a full-on crossover episode. Gary, vasectomies, I always think of them as being something they used to do that went out of fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Went out of fashion. (laughs) During the AIDS crisis... And then condoms became something that were heavily touted and then very easy to get absolutely everywhere. So you think that condoms have taken over from vasectomies, is that correct? Yes. Right. No! <laughs> I don't think I know anybody who's had one, or if I do, they never I've told yeah, me. I've got to be honest, it's not something that you actually hear regularly in the UK these days. All I can think it, of is Michael Parkinson. Did he have it done? Yeah, he was like the face of... (laughs) (laughs) The poster boy for for Sectomies. Yes. He had it done by Rod Holland Emu. 
It's a certain age group. It's a certain age group, though. You have to mix with the right people, people that have completed their families, generally. That's, that's where it comes into it. You don't get 20-year-olds having the snip. Just remember point, something. Point. I'm just, oh, hang on, I'm going to have to look this up. Actually, I may have alluded to this earlier on, but... It's missed his I'm, appointment. No, I'm in a really <laughs> awkward position here because I'm surrounded by towels and bubble wrap and what have you. But I have to look this up because I have to confirm that this is correct. Just two ticks. I'm going to, I'm going to find this out. Anyway, the reason we're giggling is after seeing that episode, I went to my nearest film editor and did an alternate ending in which Dr. Charlesworth died as a result of his mate blowing a paperback and blowing it up. <laughs> right, I found it. Here we go. Right, you're not going to believe this. I saw this. I didn't see the whole thing, obviously, but I saw about 10 minutes of this on UK Gold once. There was a film from 1983 called A Slice of Life an Australian comedy film about having a vasectomy. <laughs> and it stars Robin Nedwell. Shut the front door. And apparently he has it done and then he goes putting it about because he's thinking, well, hey, I'm all liberated or what have you. And then it turns out that actually they didn't do it. So, That's hysterical. Yeah, so he's, I'm looking at this just now. It actually says here, music by Brian May. <laughs> and apparently, yes, it really is. Yeah. Wow. So that's there you go. Extraordinary. So okay, my problem with Trouble in Mind, and we did select this episode specifically because it was a really good typical illustrative episode. No, we selected it because of the ending. The problem with Trouble in Mind is that okay, so you've got your L two shows that we've discussed. They've both got a sort of twist. There's something going on there. There's some sort of either role reversal or farcical element to them that then keeps you hooked even if you're not particularly interested in their background or their jobs or whatever it is but there's nothing else in this it's just there's this fella he's a psychiatrist he works from home and he's got a bloody hell of a lot of money in the bank and that's it and so i find it quite difficult to sympathize with him and the way that that ending i mean it's just like Oh, we didn't get to meet the Queen. But never mind, because we're going to fly to India first class. Yeah, and also, you're just starting up your new business, and it's okay. You can take time off from doing that to just fly off to India with me. It's kind of patronising too, wasn't it? Well, yes. There is also the sort of... It, it's not implied in dialogue, but there's also the sort of implication that a lot of the patients he has coming in, that they're not really people who have particular problems. He's not dealing with people with depression or anything like that. And so it just looks like he's getting rich off people who have got very, very mild forms of delusion or whatever it may be. Depression to start with. In a couple of sessions with him, seeing his opulent wealth just kicks the bottom out of your entire world. <laughs> and then he shows him his scar. <laughs> he's a git, isn't he? Do you think he's taking Polaroids of it? Why? Well, yeah, he has a Polaroid camera. I'm saying, right, let's just play what happened next. I'm saying Dr. Adam Charlesworth is still out there and he's banned from Snapchat. <laughs> so, trouble in mind, it isn't even the best sitcom featuring Susan Penhaligon and landscape gardening. Oh, Which you're is? Thinking of? A fine romance. So, Julia, are you intrigued to see all nine episodes of Trouble in Mind? <sighs> I don't think intrigued is quite the right word. I would have thought by the third series, third episode, something might have happened. I was just waiting for something to happen. So no, I like Richard O'Sullivan, but not enough to do that, I think. We haven't really mentioned the plot of this one, which is they're invited to a royal garden party. Oh, was that the plot? That was the plot, yes. They're invited to a royal garden party. Deep. That was the air plot. 
and the B plot. <laughs> the B plot, yes, with the pots. Tell us about that. You didn't like that, did you? It's not a case of being angered by it. I'm interested in British comedy. Southeast Asians will will split the difference. Seem to be among the last ethnic groups to get a bite of the equality cherry. That's the word I used. They were making jokes about them that you couldn't really make about any other groups at the same time. So this is 1991. So the guy who co-owns the landscape gardening business, and he's a proper soil under his fingernails. He's he's the token working class character in this. He ends up buying a bunch of potholders that are all Chairman Mao. They're modelled on his face. Somebody in the props department must have had to make those. Or did they find a bunch of Chairman Mao pot props? <laughs> and so, can you write like a plot around these? So, we've already committed to this Royal Garden Party thing, but yeah, we'll get a subplot. So we get... They all look alike jokes. And then this thing that uh, Chinese, Japanese, they're all the same. And then he tries to sell them as being models of sumo wrestlers. And he starts making up what he thinks are Japanese sounding names. And one of them is Ping Pong Pang, that kind of thing. And it's 1991. It's interesting. And I'm just putting that as a piece of cultural history. I'm not pointing fingers because, of course, who wrote this episode, Gary? This episode was written by Tony Milan and Mike Walling. And next time, I think it is, we'll be talking about them tackling bigotry. So I just put that as a note on the development of British cultural sensitivities. There was another bit where I thought there were kind of the other Doctor character, his best friend, who he's a jerk. Uh, But he's even posher than Dr. Charlesworth. But I like that. I, I've got a thing about that. So I like them either rough, like Jack Regan. I like them posh, like um, Peter Regan and George Osborne. Well, can we establish, we, we've had this before, but I think now we can say beyond doubt that I'm the poshest one in the sitcom club. You can't, but you're northern. I don't know about the bucket. I grew up without the bucket. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, no, yeah, we had a bucket. We had a bucket. So, you know. Julia, yeah. the thing is, he is northern, but also he's doing the show alongside Glaswegian. And I've just caused terrible offence to the whole of Glasgow. I do apologise for that. It's okay, they don't have the internet. My parents went to a royal garden party, so I know something about the invitation process. Ah, yes, you picked up on a flaw, didn't you? Well, I don't know if it's a flaw, because we don't actually see who gets it, but he's the one we see with the invitation, yeah? They send the invitation to the wife. This is what caused a whole kerfuffle in the house. My mum received this envelope... And inside was an invitation to a royal garden party. And it was just like, this has got to be some sort of joke. But this was really nice stiff card. And there was kind of gold leaf type stuff on it. Somebody's gone an extra mile for a joke. But it was like, my mum doesn't know anybody who'd get an invitation to a royal garden party. I was like, if it was my dad, that would make more sense. My dad knew more people in more places. And we're trying to make sense of it. So in the end, my mum said, I was I think then maybe there was a phone number on it, or we got a phone number. Somehow, invitations to Royal Garden Parties hotline. <laughs> if you'd like to talk to people who also have invitations to Royal Garden Party, <laughs> called and said, we appear to have an invitation to a Royal Garden Party. Do you know anything about this? And it's like, what's that? Yes, yes, we know, we know all about that. It's like, why was it sent to Mrs.? And it's like, we send them to the wives so the husbands can't bring their mistresses. So that's the kind of people who get invited to royal garden parties that you have to have that as like number one consideration. It was just that my dad had worked for somebody who then went on to be involved in the sending out of 
invitations to royal garden parties. So it was one of my dad's old bosses. Uh, they didn't get to meet the queen. They did get to see her walk past. And uh, my dad had injured his ankle. And so he went in a morning suit and grey trainers. Smashing. So Dr. Charlesworth, his problems can be summed up by, I'm incredibly rich and I have an incredibly hot wife. Oh, what am I going to do? I don't have a yacht. <laughs> <laughs> It's the script. It's the script. It's still going to end with him saying, oh, don't worry, darling. I bought the Taj Mahal and had it pulled down and had a huge golden statue of my operation. We're not really... We're just kind of blinded with class rage here with this one. Should we unpack it a bit more? Right, so the other doctor's telling that story about his uncle getting excited thinking he was in a football match and kicking his aunt, resulting in divorce. You're right, there's a torn problem here. But at first it's like, oh, it's his uncle's into football. And because it was in the middle of Harrods Food Hall. Why did it have to be Harrods? <laughs> she made little. This is potentially a, a sort of grim cul-de-sac that I'm going to go down now. I'm just thinking, this is 1991, right? If this show had been two years later, could it still have happened? Because autumn of 1992, you've got Black Wednesday. And a lot of people who would have considered themselves relatively comfortable have suddenly got sky-high mortgages and their house is in danger. So if people didn't find this tolerable in 1991, would anybody have found it tolerable a couple of years later? People didn't find it tolerable in 1991, though, did they? So it shouldn't have happened in the first place. We're really being very mean about this. Also, the Polaroid joke doesn't really work. Can you remind us what that is? She says early on that her wish is to see the Taj Mahal by moonlight. And he gives her a Polaroid of the local Indian restaurant called the Taj Mahal, and he took a picture of it. But the thing is, he said, I did that last Wednesday. Why? You planned this? You've been saving this up? If he'd said, I was just on the way home from missing the Royal Garden Party because my psychiatric... Work came first, and I just noticed the Taj Mahal restaurant. Take a picture of it. Okay, it still wouldn't be a fantastic joke, but it would make a bit more sense. But this whole idea that he went out on Wednesday night with his Polaroid and thought, snap, snap, snap. Does does he often go out Wednesday nights and take Polaroids? So, uh, move to a less competitive time slot. It was only two episodes. Episode 5, 9.25pm. Episode 6, 9.05 and then when it came back, it did come back in the less competitive summer months, but it was back on 7.15 on Sunday night. So the last three went out in a less competitive season, but the same time slot. I did research on this. Oh, smashing, smashing. And I can't think of too many other shows that have had two lots of movements of that type. It's usually just one, usually halfway down the line or something like that. But uh, So okay. the so- problems of professional class is that difference between security and actual humiliation the difference between being annoyed things just not quite going your way in some aspect and actually having your dream fall apart before your eyes and i don't think it's going to be a problem we get when we go to ruling class because in ruling class there is that whole thing of standards dropping this isn't the world we grew up in oiks have too much power it's going to be difficult to make a sympathetic character who makes those jokes you can at least have a significant loss of status be the hinge of of an episode not just the idea of a sitcom there's actually more scope for humiliation when you're at the top well i think you're right and also i think there was when you were talking about southeast asian 
community before and you were saying about the, the like the last group who it was sort of acceptable to make jokes about and what have you i think as far as the ruling class is concerned there was no problem with them being just utter buffoons and it doesn't matter what kind of character they, they come out as it's not as if really anybody's going to complain well it's safe to think of them as buffoons isn't it Insofar as if you make fun of them, it's comforting to think that the world is run by those people when actually the world is run by those people and they are certainly not buffoons. It's, um, hmm, yeah, that's all I said. I didn't finish that thought very well. The interesting thing is that I seem to remember a while ago one of those test dry Q programs used to get on Saturday nights every other year or so, you know, like the, the interactive red button and what have you. I seem to remember that one of their findings was that the highest earning section of the community actually had the lowest IQ and it would be an interesting area to delve into as far as like the ruling class are concerned and if they've been sort of born into it and they've just sort of perhaps inherited their wealth and you know they've got these sort of businesses that they, they nominally run and so on they're not necessarily going to be particularly well-rounded well-educated people they're probably going to have good general knowledge if they've been schooled well but they're not necessarily going to be the best people in terms of having social skills outside of their own tight circle or whatever it may be. But you're kind of mixing things up there, I think, because they probably are well-schooled, but your IQ isn't about your learning, is it, necessarily? And what you were talking about social skills, that's probably about emotional intelligence. But, I mean, if you look at people like, I'm not picking on anyone, but look at Eugenie and Beatrice. I mean, come on, they're not the brightest buttons anyway, are they? I was about to say that truly we had the wrong union of Windsor and Ferguson. Prince Charles should have lived his dream and married Sheila Ferguson. <laughs> Julia, thank you very much indeed for joining us today in our analysis of the professional class. Three down, one to go. And yes, we'll speak to you again very soon, Julia, because we'll be coming back to the topic of class before the end of the year on the sitcom club. Dear listener, as you may know, of course, we are now working on a fortnightly basis where the sitcom club alternates with Javagates for Proust. Tilt, what are we going to be discussing this time next week? I've got 1972 tapped into the time machine we will be looking at three films from 1972 where men have had to dress up as women for disguise and supposedly comedy so in the meantime you can catch up with all the previous episodes of sitcom club and jaffa cakes for proust and the jaffa cake jukebox for that matter at sitcomclub.com and at podnose.com where you'll find all manner of other podcasts as well and you can get in touch with us feedback at sitcomclub.com and also on twitter at the sitcom club in two weeks' time, we'll be returning to the guys who wrote today's episode of Trouble in Mind. Is it Tony Millen or Milan? I, I would say Milan. Okay, but... so Tony Milan and Mike Walling wrote a sitcom called A Small Problem that appears to have been controversial even before it aired, and it didn't get a very easy ride, and it's intriguing. Okay, in the meantime, thank you again to Julia. Thank you. And to Tilt. Goodbye. This is Gary and this has been The Sitcom Club.